to Ephesians chapter 6. It has been a few weeks since we've been in Ephesians. We had Palm Sunday, then we had Easter, and then last week we had the Blaze panel, which, uh, by the way, when Will gets back from Uganda, he and I are going to meet and talk about a follow-up meeting um, for those interested in learning more about Blaze. For now, we're back to Ephesians. Follow as I read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. This is the Word of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Amen. Now, if you're new with us, our uh, mode of operation is just to go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We came upon Ephesians 6 the last time we were together. And uh, we're still talking about our children here. We're going to stay in these verses probably for the next few weeks. Uh, today we're actually going to end up talking about the baptism of our children. But because it has been a few weeks, I'm going to give a few minutes of recap um, to refresh us in what we talked about last time. I think being familiar with that will help us be familiar here. Um, so get comfortable while we recap and we'll get where we're going eventually. So last time, we essentially didn't get past the first word in our passage, children. And I said that before we get to what the children are called to do, obey your parents, honor your father and mother, we need to consider the fact that the children are here in the first place. And we will continue to see that theme today. Uh, Presumably this includes very young children. I say this because in verse 4, Paul's giving instruction to fathers about how to bring up children, which implies children that have not yet been brought up or are in the process of being brought up. In other words, among them are the very young. And not only are the children present in the assembled congregation, but God addresses them personally, specifically, in the assembled congregation. And not only does God address them, but He gives them responsibilities. These are covenant responsibilities in relationship with God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and mother. And not only have they been given covenant responsibilities, but there is a promised blessing for obedience. Honor your father and mother, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you and uh, that you may live long in the land. So, responsibilities and blessings are hallmarks of a covenant relationship. Then we realize in verse 2 that Paul is quoting from the Ten Commandments, which is that covenant document that was given to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, given to adults and children for generations. All I'm trying to say at this point is that covenant relationship with God should be on our mind And covenant relationship with God still works the way that covenant relationship with God has always worked, us and our children. If you travel throughout the major covenants of Scripture, if you start with Noah and go to Abraham, those are often called the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. If I use that language, I don't want to... It sounds smart or whatever. I just... That's what it's called. That's what I... You know, I don't... Then uh, you go from there, Noah, Abraham, you go to Israel in covenant at Mount Sinai. That's often called the Mosaic Covenant because it came through Moses. 
then to David, often called the Davidic covenant, then to the New Covenant. And what you'll see in all these major covenants in Scripture is that even though each covenant is unique, they all have similarities. And one of the similarities uh, is that every single one of them uses this language to you and your descendants or us and our children. Uh, So the first point to remember today is that our children are in covenant relationship with God. The children of believers are in covenant relationship with God. And then we have to remember that covenant isn't just about receiving responsibilities from God and it's not just about promised blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience if you obey or disobey. Covenant relationship with God is undergirded by His binding commitment to those that He enters into covenant relationship with. Again, if you travel throughout all the major covenants in Scripture, you'll see this to be true. God's commitment to His covenant people undergirds whatever commitment His covenant people will make to Him. I showed you this from God's covenant with Abraham. There's the covenant ceremony in Genesis 15 where all the animals are cut in half and there's the aisle and we're going, what in the world is going on there? And, but in Abraham's day, this is a very familiar ceremony where a sovereign conquering king, let's say these two you know, cities are at war, the sovereign conquering king would have this covenant ceremony with, a, with the servant king, the conquered king. The animals would be cut in half, they would make an aisle, and the servant would pass through the pieces as if to say, I hear what you're saying, I agree to the terms of our agreement, and let it be to me as to these animals if I don't hold up my end of the bargain. The servant would say that to the sovereign. But with Abraham, God flips that on its head. God passes through the pieces as if to say, Abraham, I am making covenant promises to you and if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, let it be to me as to these animals. So in the cultural covenants of the day, the servant would pass through the pieces committing himself to the sovereign. In God's covenants, the sovereign commits himself to the servants. God commits Himself to His people before His people ever make any commitments to Him. We see this with Abraham. We see this with Israel. The whole context of the Ten Commandments is their redemption from Egypt. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before Me. You know, it it comes in the context of redemption, of you are My people, I am your God, here's the commandment. And of course we see this in the new covenant in Christ. God's commitment to us comes before we commit to Him. We talked about this in Ephesians 1 a lot. Before the foundation of the world, God predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God planned to save us. God actually saved us. God opened our eyes to the fact that He saved us. God gave us a new heart to respond to the fact that He saved us all before we ever made a move toward Him. So remember that God commits to His covenant people before we commit to Him. And remember that our children are in covenant relationship with God. And the third thing I want you to be thinking about is that all of God's covenants are connected to one another. Now, they are all distinct from one another. 
um, yet they are all interconnected. So last time I showed you the passage in Ezekiel 37, which is speaking about the new covenant which is to come in Christ. And in talking about the new covenant, it uses the language of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. It was a prophecy foretelling the coming of Christ, and it says that He would be the David, the servant shepherd king that was promised in the covenant with David. It says it talks about descendants, our children, our children's children. It talks about land, which is the language, both of that, descendants and land. That's the language of the Abrahamic covenant. It also talks about the fact that Jesus' people will be careful to walk according to God's laws, which is the language of the Mosaic covenant, fulfilled in the new covenant in Christ as we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit and are now able to do as God's people what His people Israel were never able to do, which is follow Him according to His commands. The point is, all of these previous covenants find their fulfillment in the new covenant in Christ. They are all distinct. They are all given at particular times to particular people. And yet, they are all interconnected. They are all heading to the same place, which is the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So three things I want you to keep in mind as we move forward. Number one, all of God's covenants are connected and they find their final, ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Number two, God commits to His covenant people before we ever commit to Him. And number three, our children are in covenant relationship with God. As we see in Ephesians 6, there is the language of covenant. So, with that in mind, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the baptism of our children. And some of you, you know, you're not that concerned about this. I mean, we, why should we be concerned? Well, because baptism is uh, something that we're called to in Christ. It's a part of our discipleship, and um, it's not unimportant. Um, you know, we must be baptized as followers of Christ. And, and for those of us who have children, you know, it something that some of us wrestle with and some of us raised one way to believe this way and that way. Um, it's not unimportant. Most of you know by now that our church is a little different than most other churches uh, that you've ever been in and that we have two distinct views on baptism operating at the same time. So some people have their infants or children baptized And some people wait until their children profess the faith uh, and have them baptized when they're older, when they've, you know, professed the faith. We have staff people that hold differing views. Um, It's decided really at the household level between you and God and your children. And just to be clear, those that hold to infant baptism believe in believer's baptism. We all agree in believer's baptism. Uh, If there is an adult that is converted who has not been baptized, he or she should be baptized. If you're an adult, a believer in Jesus Christ, you've never been baptized, be baptized. Um, We should do that soon. And we can start moving towards that process, you know, today. And I would say, bring your children with you if, uh, if you've got kids. My family is an example of this. 
I was converted to Christ at age 21. I had not been baptized. My parents were not in church when I was an infant. I don't think they started going to church till I was like four or five. Uh, and, and then even at that, they didn't start going to a church that baptized infants. I think they started going to First of Ann, and I, I don't think First of Ann does that. So, all that to say, I was baptized in this church as an adult by Dr. Young in the worship service, and he poured on me. Now we're really confused. People are like, wait a second. He poured on me just like he pours on the babies that he baptizes. Um, we can talk about that more. That has to do with mode. There's one baptism. What is it? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's just making inference from, you know, when the baptism comes, <coughs> when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, it, it's like uh, flames of fire on the head, you know, and so he's saying, see? And other people are like, yeah, death and resurrection. I mean, you can go either way. The mode doesn't bother me. But, you know, I was baptized via the poor. Uh, you kind of have the dunk and the pour and the sprinkle. And uh, I, I think you can find uh, good reason biblically for any of them. So there's a distinction between pouring and sprinkling? There is. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. See, you learn something every day. <coughs> of course there is. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you can. A little spritz. Now, um, my wife grew up in a Presbyterian church, so she was baptized as an infant. She also was converted to Christ at age 21, walked away from the faith, walked away from you know the Lord and, and her church, and she comes to faith at 21. She was not rebaptized because she was baptized as an infant. So the view of infant baptism does not believe in rebaptism. We believe that when you're born again, which happens by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we believe that then your water baptism has been fulfilled. That thing to which your water baptism points has now happened. Rejoice in the Lord. Your baptism has been fulfilled. The Holy Spirit baptism, that one baptism that we're really all after. So... The point is, infant baptizers still believe in believer's baptism for those who have not been baptized. And then we believe that our children should be baptized as well. So Levi and Eva Claire have been baptized. Sarah will be baptized soon. And so on and so forth. If there is a so on and so forth. Uh, Now, I know that for many that come from the Baptist world, this just feels weird. Um, it's not the way you grew up. If you're honest, you can't imagine how anyone would do such a thing. <clears throat> if you're really honest, you lose a little bit of respect for those that do it. And I mean, maybe not, maybe a lot, but I mean, at least a little, you're going, these people are crazy. But the re- that's why I do all the back work uh, to you know explain some things, kind of the behind the scenes, to at least explain how do you get there? How how could you ever arrive at such a position? Well, all the covenants are interconnected. All of Scripture is God's Word. Uh, The New Testament is not more for the Christian than the Old Testament. Both Testaments are intricately woven together in Christ. All the covenants are interconnected in Christ. For example, 
Galatians 3.7 says, It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, Galatians 3 in the New Testament is talking to Christians in the New Covenant in Christ, and it says that those who have faith in Christ are the true descendants of the Abrahamic covenant. The covenants are interconnected. The Abrahamic covenant finds its fulfillment in the New Covenant. But I thought the sons of Abraham were the Jews. Well, in a sense, that's right. Abraham was the great patriarch of Israel, the father of Israel. But as we learn elsewhere in in the New Testament in Romans 9, it says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, not all of national Israel is the true Israel. The true Israel is comprised of all true believers throughout history, both Jew and Gentile. A Jew is not merely one outwardly, but inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit. So, I am more truly Jewish than my friend Aryeh, who is the worship leader at the Orthodox synagogue, Jewish synagogue, in my neighborhood. Because I have faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, and I've said this before, if he comes over for dinner, we're not going to start by talking like that. You know, I mean, that's not a real endearing... So, I've been thinking... Um, But this much we do know to be true biblically. I am more of a son of Abraham than Aryeh. Even though he has Jewish blood pumping through his veins. The covenant with Abraham is fulfilled in the new covenant in Christ. The covenants are interconnected. They all find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus and His body, the church. So I'm trying to explain, how could you ever do such a thing as to have your children baptized... And, and then even beyond that, strongly discourage them from being rebaptized upon profession of faith. I'm not all the, way there yet, all the way there yet, but we're heading there. So, Again, all the covenants are connected. Abrahamic covenant finds its fulfillment in the new covenant in Christ, and our children are in covenant relationship with God. Now then, what was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. What is the sign of the new covenant? Baptism. Now, I'm not sure the exact day that it changed. Uh, It seems to be a gradual process over a period of years in the New Testament. But everyone agrees that it has changed. That the, the covenant sign has changed. Uh, when God's people expanded from one nation, Israel, to the church among all nations, the sign of the covenant changed from circumcision to baptism. That said, because the covenants are interconnected, we can learn from the Abrahamic covenant about how to administer the covenant sign. So who was the first to receive the covenant sign in the Abrahamic covenant? Josh? She said Abraham. Abraham, that's right. As an adult, 99 years old. Now, what was that about? What was that 
thing about. Symbolize the cutting of the flesh of the animals and the promise coming through it. <clears throat> the promise. I would even go further to say the faith. He, Romans 4.11 He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that He had by faith. So there's a deeper spiritual reality with His sign, right? Okay, who was circumcised after that? Not yet. Okay. Mostly male adults, which were a part of Abraham's household, and then his son Ishmael, who was 13. Okay. Genesis 14 14 says that that would have been 318 male adults. You know, Abraham, God had really blessed him and given him a lot. And there were a lot of people that were of his household. And so. I mean, we got the better in the deal in terms of the whole baptism thing. But listen, you've got 318 adult males and Abraham's 13-year-old son, Ishmael. Who was circumcised after that? Isaac, infants, and adults. Whenever someone would join Israel, there's that uh, new generation that because their parents were the wayward generation in the wilderness, they didn't circumcise their kids. And uh, God's like, yeah, sorry, you're going to have to now do that as adults. And so they get circumcised as adults before they go into the promised land. Yeesh. So, circumcision started with Abraham and mostly adults, but one child. Then as we move along, it was mostly infants, and there are adults in there too. Um, if they joined Israel for any reason, etc., etc. Now move to the new covenant in Christ. Everyone agrees that the sign has changed from circumcision to baptism as we move from Israel to the church. And we all see that women are baptized now as well. We see Lydia's baptism in Acts 16. Um, but the infant baptism perspective says... Granted that the sign has changed. Granted that women are included. Hallelujah and praise God. But why have we now excluded our children? We see very clearly that the covenants are interconnected. I am a son of Abraham. I am a member of the Abrahamic covenant which is fulfilled in the new covenant in Christ. I received the sign as an adult like Abraham. It was a sign and seal of the righteousness of that I had by faith. But why would my children not also receive the sign? The children in Israel received the sign. The sign was always pointing to a deeper reality. It started out that way with Abraham. It's about the whole faith thing. The real issue was faith. Circumcision was always pointing to the circumcision of the heart. Bodily circumcision pointed to heart circumcision. Just like bodily baptism points to Spirit baptism, which transforms our hearts. Yet some received it after the spiritual reality was already present, uh, and some received it as infants before the spiritual reality was present. Our children are in covenant relationship with God. The covenants are all interconnected, and God's commitment to us comes before our commitments to Him, which I believe infant circumcision so beautifully portrayed and infant baptism so beautifully portrays. More than baptism being about our commitment to God, 
Baptism is about God's commitment to us. To us and to our children. So why do Baptists view it as they do? And, um, you know, some could come up here and probably say this better. If I haven't been fair, one of you please, you know, don't hit me, but correct me. Um, They get to the New Testament and say that something has changed. They say, um, all we see in the New Testament are adults being baptized after they have believed. You show me an infant baptism in the New Testament and I will believe it. But I think this flows out of a disjointed view of the Scriptures. I think this prioritizes the New Testament over the Old Testament. And I think it fails to consider the larger context of the whole. When, when circumcision first started, who was circumcised? You had 99-year-old Abraham. You had 318 other adults. You had one teenager, Ishmael. Then you moved to a mixture of infants and adults, uh, likely more infants. Well, what is the situation in the New Testament? The Spirit comes at Pentecost and the church is born. Thousands are being added to their number. Thousands of adults, the ones who were in those meetings to listen to those messages from Peter and Paul and the rest. When the sign is first being given to the church and you have majority adults, uh, or you do have majority adults, just like when the sign was first being given to Israel. So why then will we not expect things to move much the same. It makes sense that adults are the first ones, but what about our children? Covenants still work the same way they always have. Us and our children. We are in covenant relationship with God. Our children are in covenant relationship with God. Why would they not receive the covenant sign? Baptists say, show me an infant baptism in the New Testament and I'll believe you. And to that, I would like to say, show me a second generation believer's baptism of anyone to prove that something has changed and we now wait for our children to profess the faith and then be baptized. You can't do that, and I think the burden is on you to prove that because that would mark a clear change in the way that God has always operated. Maybe I can't show you an infant baptism. You can't show me a second generation believer waiting until he professes the faith to be baptized. I've also heard a Baptist friend, and let me just be clear, um, I love and respect my Baptist brothers and sisters. I look up to and follow many Baptist leaders in the church. John Piper, Al Mohler, John MacArthur, Russell Moore, somebody I've recently turned to. And these guys are glad Baptists, okay? I mean, it's not, there's no budge. Like, they are over there and not going anywhere. Um, have close fellowship with many Baptists personally, some of you in here. So, on staff, I mean, it's not... I hope that comes through. But I've also heard a Baptist friend say that Baptism is different than circumcision because circumcision was more of a national sign and baptism is more of a spiritual sign. And I just don't think that's true. Circumcision was always pointing to a deeper spiritual reality. You see that kind of language all throughout the Old Testament, the circumcision of the heart. And we see that again in the New Testament confirming that's indeed what it was about. True circumcision is a matter of the heart. So it was national and spiritual, just like baptism. Or I guess you could say, Baptism is more international and spiritual. 
But in that objective national sense, baptism signifies your membership in the church, right? The entry into the church. And it points to a deeper spiritual reality. A reality that is present in some before they receive it, and some after. Just like in Israel. And to the charge that I can't show an infant baptism, I may not be able to show an infant, but I can show you where uh, people in the whole household were baptized based on the leader of the house's faith. So I want you to turn to Acts 16. I know we're getting along here, but bear with me and we'll be done. Now, in Acts 16, we're looking at the conversion of the Philippian jailer. You may remember the story. Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown in prison. Next, they are in prison singing hymns to God and praying, uh, which is what, what other way would you respond to being beaten and thrown in prison? And, uh, and then an earthquake hits. All the doors fling wide open. All of their bonds are loosed. God has set them free. Well, the jailer wakes up and he sees that the doors are open and he thinks, I'm going to kill myself because this is my, you got one job. You know, this is his one job and he knows if I don't kill myself, my Roman authorities are going to kill me. So uh, let's pick up there in Acts 16, starting in verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. They haven't gone anywhere. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Isn't that what we always want someone to ask? Like, if sharing the gospel were only that easy. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Note, he was baptized with his whole family there at the end of verse 33. But that doesn't say that the family also didn't believe. Bear with me. I'm getting there. Jumpy, aren't we? Now... The first temptation is <laughs> the first temptation is to say, yeah, but they all heard. It does say that. They all heard the word uh, preached to them. But you have to read the text more carefully than that. But, I mean, first of all, we know that all who hear do not believe. But look at verse 34. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So, the Philippian jailer believed and his whole family was baptized. He was baptized after he believed. I would say they were baptized looking ahead to when they would believe. Now, maybe some of them already did believe, but it doesn't say that and we can't make that argument. It does say that he believed and they were baptized. God set His love on the jailer and his household, which is the way He has always worked in covenant relationship. So that even if they didn't believe initially, there was a hope and a joyful expectation that they would. Now, immediately we get here and people start getting weird and, you know, gosh, I mean, if, if, 
it's better chance for my kids to know God. I mean, I'll get them baptized. Just show me where. And that's, you know, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what infant baptism means. It's the covenant sign. And remember that the covenant is much more about God's commitment to us than it is our commitment to God. God's commitments to us undergird whatever commitments we're going to make to Him. He commits to us before we ever make a move. Infant circumcision was a beautiful picture of that. Infant baptism is now. We don't stand a chance unless God is committed to us. And He is. To us and to our children. All right, a few minutes for questions. Josh. All right, I'll just go with the Acts passage. Okay. If I read this literally, his household is saved because of his belief. No. It says, you will be saved. You know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So either he's talking, I mean, he's talking singularly, but if he's saying singularly, if you believe, then your household is going to be saved. If I'm just doing a literal well, reading of it. I do. I don't think this means he believed then, they didn't, and they're all in heaven. That's not how I think it works. But I do think it means something much more than you're good, now let's see how it works out with them. I believe it means God has set his love on you and your family, and there is hope and expectation and a promise that they will be saved. No, I I would say that's for sure. So all of it's for sure because of his because of the jailer's belief, his family for sure will be saved. All I can tell you is that is exactly what I believe for my children because I believe that God has made those covenant promises for me and my children that uh, I believe and I believe that they will believe and be saved. Now, is there uh, an area of I I still believe in. The way covenants have always worked, God is sovereign, we are responsible. 100%, 100%. Everybody, 100%, must believe individually in order to be saved. But I think it's back to one of those tensions in Scripture. How could God be sovereign and man be 100% responsible? Well, I don't know. But I would say this. God is saving the world, no one can stop Him. And if God's people don't tell, the world won't be saved. Now, those seem to be in contradiction. They're not. It's just the means that He has set up. So I think I think that fits into that. There are sovereign covenant promises to us and to our children which don't do away with the personal responsibility aspect that they too must repent and believe. I just am rooted in a hope that they will. And I would even say too something that we have to consider with our church in particular is that there's not any infighting with the fact that we are doing two different baptisms Mm -hmm. because as our church formed, that was one of the non-essentials versus an essential, believing in the Trinity and that the Bible was inspired and all of that. And so I think you have to keep that in perspective, especially even with newer families joining the church, Mm -hmm. understanding that we have come to an agreement that this is not an essential where you have to only believe in the way of baptizing. And that it's okay that we may see things differently, but we're still lining up on what God has put in place as essentials for our church. Even like music. I think churches split over music. I know. It's a non-essential. Um, and so that's why Jimmy tries to do things 
Umlauf tries to do things, you know, to meet everybody's needs, but that's not something that we should focus on. So, right here in my notes, I say, say a word about the necessity of unity in the non-essentials. Uh, so, I mean, you know, and the blessing that our church is that we seek to practice that in regard to baptism and other things, as you've said. We will have disagreement. But there is great strength when we have unity, even in our diversity and even among our disagreements on these non-essential issues. Now, I would say this. By non-essential, it does not mean unimportant. It is important. But it is non-essential to salvation. There will be those in heaven that were baptized as infants. There will be those that were baptized upon profession of faith. There will be those that weren't baptized at all, despite what some of you were taught growing up. We cannot disagree on whether Jesus is the one way of salvation. There's no room, there's no room for disagreement. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. But Christians disagree on this, on the right practice of baptism, on the right practice of the Lord's Supper, on the right way to educate our kids. You know, we're talking about kids. Um, I would say we need to think through these issues. We need to make arguments on these issues. But at the end of the day, we should keep the main thing the main thing, and we should fight for unity in all things in Christ. That brings us back to Ephesians 4. When Paul starts talking about the imperative, the things that we are to do in light of what God has done, the first place he starts is the essential of unity in the body of Christ. I really appreciate you bringing that up because it is. And, um, you know, Josh and I could get together and make passionate arguments and leave slightly pissed, you know? <laughs> Me, not him. He's too cool, you know. No, I mean, cool-headed. I'm a hothead, you know what I mean. I mean both. But, but, at the end of the day, if our determination is not to fight for unity in the body of Christ, and I personally think we're really on to something here. You know, I see this from a unique perspective because I'm pursuing ordination. Well, look, I can't be a Baptist and I can't be a Presbyterian. Because they both think this is crazy. Because I think they've both made baptism an essential. You've got to believe like me on this issue in order to be in this fellowship. You've got to believe like me on... I don't like that. I like that our church says, you know what? People are passionate about it. You ought to hear Dr. Young talk about this. I mean, he... <laughs> you know, he's... You know... Wild. But... But I think what he has communicated so loudly from the beginning of this church is we are not going to make... He planted this church with a Baptist. I mean, and he wasn't Reformed at that. So you think about, you know, we talk about Reformed theology and all and people, that's weird. But I mean, we have always sought to say these are things that are not necessary for salvation. All right, anything else we got to... Chris, I'm one of those Baptist guys you're talking about. I know. And uh, one thing... I'm just curious because I don't really understand. Is I, I get the baptism. So I'm with you there. But for consistency's sake, just help me understand. We don't have to do this now because I know we got to go. As far as uh, infant communion, like, is, is, is that something that's, I know it's not done here? And why is it not 
I'm just curious about that. Why is that? We're going to talk about that next week. So okay. <laughs> come back. Uh, you know, what are you saying? Are you saying it seems more consistent that the children will be given communion? I agree. But I am in the minority, and that does not represent this church's position at all. And so whatever I'm going to say next week, I'm going to make very clear, I'm not representing anyone. These are me wrestling around with my own... And that's not to say that my daughter Sarah, who is not quite three weeks old, should be eating communion. But uh, just at the age when they eat solid food, I think they should grow up eating the covenant meal because they are in covenant with God. It's not even... Look, that is so far outside of... I mean, Calvin said otherwise. I'm going to talk about this next week. And everyone kind of goes with Calvin on this thing. But uh, it it seems to some... You understand how a Baptist says this? Because they just say all of it waits until they profess the faith. They get baptized, they start taking communion. Presbyterians, generally, there is a larger and increasingly large view of uh, pedo communion, you know, feeding your children the supper. But, um, and I'm going to argue along the same lines. It communicates the gospel. God's commitment to you in Christ comes before any commitments you ever make to Him. Uh, I think the other one communicates. works you perform and then you can come but you know what do i know and i am so far that is not the position of this church i need to be careful and make much more careful uh spend some time looking at it um but again what i would hope to see on that issue is it become like the other one and it handle at the household level and we can say but that issue like for instance for me 